Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone phone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Rob. And I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Coping with the Stresses of Caregiving When Your Loved One Has Multimyeloma. And this is part two of Living with Multimyeloma. And today's program is supported by Bristol Myers Squibb and GlaxoSmithKline and an educational grant from Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC. And I really want to thank them for their support of this program. Now, we have a lot of you on the call today. We have over 352 participants on the call today. And you come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have a number of international participants from Brazil, Canada, Cyprus, Egypt, Iraq, India, Kenya, Mauritius, Lithuania, Nepal, and the United Kingdom. So it's a global call as well. And really, we're delighted to have all of you on the call today. So now it's my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Andrew Yee. And Dr. Yee is instructor in medicine, Harvard Medical School, Center for Multimyeloma, Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center. And Dr. Yee will be addressing overview of the treatment of multimyeloma, in the context of COVID, Omicron, and seasonal flu, and your important role in decision-making and communicating with the healthcare team. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Yee. Right. Th uh, thank you, Carol, and thank you again for the invitation to talk about uh, multiple myeloma, and I'd also like to thank the sponsors for helping to make such an important event happen, since I think it's really yeah, I guess it speaks to how important it is to be educated about, you know, multiple myeloma, as well as hearing more about how tips for for caregiving since it's such a challenging topic, and and you know, taking care of multiple myeloma is such a it's it's like it's a marathon, it's a long process, and there are lots of ups and downs along the way. So I think the more education patients and their caregivers have, I think makes for the best possible experience. So. I wanted to talk a little bit about how, you know, multiple myeloma treatments evolved uh, so much over the years, and I think, you know, really in the past couple of years, there have been some really exciting developments in how we think about multiple myeloma and also touch a little bit about COVID at the end. Um, I think one of the key themes is that, you know, these new therapies as they've emerged really help you know, transform the care of, of, our, of, of patients in terms of getting deeper responses, having patients enjoy these deeper responses for longer periods of time while maintaining the quality of life. And, you know, there's, there are some several trends that I can think about uh, when I think about multiple myeloma care. One is, uh, you know, the regimens for newly diagnosed patients are, you know, they're becoming more involved over time and, and there's increasing use of, for example, uh, CD38 monoclonal antibodies like daratumumab as part of the care of newly diagnosed patients, either you know for patients where you think about using high-dose melphalan and stem cell transplants part of your initial therapy, or for patients where a transplant isn't planned, you know, daratumumab is really an important component of that. 
And this CD30 monoclonal antibody, as well as ecetuximab, is really also playing a really key role for patients where after their initial therapy uh, doesn't work as well, if that can, uh, drugs like you know, daratumumab and ecetuximab can play a key role for, for getting those responses back in, in subsequent lines of therapy. Uh, a key development uh, in, in the past couple of years has been, you know, drugs that are targeting BCMA. And this is uh, something that your care team may talk more and more about uh, over, over the years, since therapies that target BCMA are becoming an important component of myeloma care. Uh, typically, we think of, when we think about multiple myeloma therapy, we think about the three, you know, the three core classes of therapy. One is drugs like Revlimid, also known as lenalidomide, or Pomalis, pomalidomide. These are the immunomodulatory drugs. These are oral drugs. They serve as an important component of myeloma care. We have proteasome inhibitors like Velcade, also known as bortezomib, or Kyprolis, carfilzomib. That's like kind of one of the second key components. And then there's the corticosteroids like dexamethasone as a as, as, the th as the third class of the three classes. And then we have therapies targeting BCMA, which I think of as like the fourth class. And, you know, these have been in clinical trials for years, and now we have them available for use for patients outside of a clinical trial. So these are therapies that, that can be more immediately accessible since you do not necessarily need to participate in a clinical trial. And so, you know, so BCMA stands for B-cell maturation uh, antigen, and this is a protein on the surface of myeloma cells and plasma cells, similar to how CD38 is a protein on the surface of plasma cells and myeloma cells. And so we have different ways of targeting uh, BCMA. One is CAR T-cell therapy, and there are two CAR T-cell therapies that we have available now that are approved. One, was, one is Abecma, that was approved at the beginning of 2021, and then one is Carvicti, which is approved in the beginning of 2022. And these are living drugs. These are therapies which take your white blood cells and then they get modified to attack myeloma cells. And these therapies, these CAR T cell therapies, are again, as a living drug, they're infused and then they go seek out myeloma cells. And the, the, the the bullet points to highlight is that this is a therapy that's one and done. You have this therapy, and then patients can enjoy extended periods of time being off therapy. And I think for, for many patients who have been through multiple lines of treatment, having an opportunity to get a therapy that's one and done is, is transformational. And, and I've seen efficacy in patients who have been in a lot of trouble with the myeloma, and it's, been, it's completely been a game changer for them. And I think this sounds almost hyperbole, but it's, it's, it's hard to overstate how transformational this therapy can be for some patients. Um, now, the main limitation with this CAR T-cell therapy is that it's only really available at major medical centers that have access to these cellular-type therapies. And slots before have been very limited, but now increasingly uh, we have more slot availability, so access is less of an issue in terms of waiting for a slot. Now it's more the logistics of being able to get to a major medical center. So uh, 
this is a you know again it, it, this is a therapy that's currently approved in patients who've had four prior lines of therapy, but we've had clinical trial data that's emerging that's evaluating it in patients after you know after two to four prior lines of therapy, for example. So this is something you'll be hearing more and more about over the course of the myeloma journey. Now, there's another therapy that targets BCMA, like a bispecific antibody. We have now one now that was approved at the end of last year, which is Tecvaly or teclistimab. And this is a therapy that is a bispecific antibody that brings together the immune system directly to BCMA. Now, the key advantage of this is that it is something that's available that's off the shelf. You don't, it's not a cellular therapy. You don't need to travel to a major medical center to receive this. This is something that can be given, uh, as an, as, uh, that can be given in the community. Though in the beginning, you are closely monitored in the hospital to monitor for side effects. But the key takeaway with this is that, again, you can see transformational responses by targeting you know, BCMA and bringing together the immune system. So uh, I, I think there's just so much excitement with this as, you know, this has a potential to kind of further move the field forward in, a, in, in the same way that drugs like, you know, Revlimid and Velcade and, and Daratumab and Isotoxib really just transformed myeloma care. I wanted to touch on briefly about uh, COVID-19 and vaccinations and how, you know, we have the bivalent booster that became available around the fall of last year. And now there's been some more recent guidance indicating that for patients who are, you know, who are immunocompromised, for people who are 65 and older, that they have, uh, that they, that they're recommending patients with those conditions. And I think myeloma would qualify as that to recommend getting uh, a booster vaccination. Since that question came up, comes up a lot for patients who had the booster, the covalent at the end of last year, should they get another one? And, and then generally the answer would be yes, that, that we would make that recommendation, though I think it's always helpful to discuss it with your care team further, especially if you've had you know, a recent COVID infection. The role of another booster at that point isn't as well uh, established. So, but I think that you know, I think I think the exciting thing in 2023 is that I, I think I speak probably for everybody is that it definitely feels different in terms of how uh, we're starting to emerge from the you know from you know when when COVID was you know in 2020 2020 when it was more of a darker period of time with COVID infection. Now we're starting to emerge from that, but also recognizing that we do have to be you know vigilant and mindful that that uh, of COVID of COVID-19. But now when we have better tools and and for fortunately for the majority of the patients who have had COVID, it's been a, a relatively minor issue compared to what it was back in 2020, 2021. Again, I think that the time now is really, it's, it's really an optimistic time for, for treating multiple myeloma, and I, I wish everyone well with, with, uh, with the process. Uh, and th thank you, Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Yi. That was a wonderful presentation. It really set the stage for today's program. So thank you. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, um, so we'll look forward to that as well. And our next speaker is Dr. Matthew um, Butler. And Dr. Butler is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Division of Hematology, Oncology, Department of Medicine, Mays MD Anderson Cancer Center, UT Health San Antonio. And Dr. Butler will be addressing challenges and rewards in communicating with the healthcare team and the benefits of telehealth telemedicine appointments including technology, prepared list of questions, quality of life concerns, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Butler.
Thank you so much. And uh, thank you for continuing to, to uh, organize these great programs. I, I hope that people get some value from them. Um, multiple myeloma is a, a, a disease that uh, has so many aspects, uh, so many treatments, so many symptoms, so many just just uh, you know details to learn. Um, it's very hard to absorb all of that in the space of a, of a doctor visit. Uh, you know, and I have these conversations every day with people, and I do my best to you know give tell them what they need to know and and help them understand the disease. Um, but I, I it, it, it's uh, there's there's a limit to what you can absorb, and uh, and so I think you all are are doing the right thing, which is you know, educating yourselves and, and, uh, and looking for other sources um, just, uh, you know, just to get more comfortable and familiar with, um, with the ins and outs. Uh, communicating with the, the people that, that you're working with in your care um, is something that, you, that nowadays happens in many different ways. Um, and, uh, you know, there's there's ups and there's downs and there's surprises and uh, you know when you're on treatment uh, you you uh, it's it's not uncommon that things come up and you need to know well do I, should I worry about this should I do something about this should I just wait it out um, and uh, having a line a, a, a means of getting in touch with uh, with someone on on this on our end on on the the healthcare team uh, is critical. Uh, it's not always easy to get a, a hold of someone like me, um, and the reason you, you kind of see the reason for that when you're when you're here for your visit. When when I'm in the room, the the, the clinic, talking with a patient, I want to give that person my whole attention, and uh, I really don't like it when I have when I you know am interrupted by a phone call to talk to someone else. There are there are some of those interruptions that we can't avoid because the treatment. Uh, nurses need to be able to get a hold of us for emergencies, but um, but it's not easy to, to as, as a patient to to get your doctor directly on the line. However, uh, this is not it, 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 it's not just the uh, the provider that it, it's a whole team, and um, you know I'm really lucky to have an amazing uh, group of nurses that understands myeloma well helps many patients through and so they have a they 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 can um uh you know deal with a lot of problems and if there's questions that they that that they want me to to weigh in on they can get a hold of me between patients or you know they they know uh, that they have access that um that the patient is tired to have for them to have directly um so get to know the clinic nurse um you know, they, they should have a number you can call, and they should be pretty accessible. Um, they're an incredible resource, and I, I could not, you know, treat myeloma without uh, folks like that working with me. Um, then, of course, you know, nowadays it's possible to have a doctor visit from from your living room or from your phone, um, and that... Uh, I, I think we've all gotten more comfortable with that idea during COVID when 
uh, you know, the isolation and, and staying away from, uh, from unnecessary contact with, with uh, strangers and the public, especially for, when some, for somebody who's immune compromised, um, that just became an expectation. And so we kind of overcame the technological barriers, which turns out w weren't that hard, uh, to be able to see someone and, um, uh, you know, plan make treatment decisions and, uh, and, and really have a pretty good sense of how uh, someone is doing without actually sitting in the same room with them. There are some things you can't do um, as far as, physically examining someone. I, when somebody has a tumor, for example, I like to feel that and see how big it is and if it's hard or soft or tender and that sort of thing. But most of the time uh, in myeloma, what really matters are the blood tests. <clears throat> they give us a pretty good window on the disease. And, uh, and if you're getting blood work, which you do have to leave your home for, but Generally, if you're coming for treatment, you, you will get blood drawn at that time. Then you, you may not have to make a whole other trip, um, especially if you're coming from far away, uh, just to go over those results. Um, with, with any uh, visit like this, uh, it's really easy to get sidetracked. It's really easy to um, forget uh, you know, uh, some of the, a question that's been nagging or a concern that you've had or a symptom that you've been trying to deal with. Um, once you find yourself in the room or, or on the video, um, it, it, it can slip your mind because you get on to other things. There's a lot to talk about. I can go on and on about the different numbers and I can show graphs on the screen and I can, you know, try to interpret what I see. But what really matters to me is is you and what you, how, what you're going through and what you're feeling, and um, so I always encourage people to try to jot things down uh, in advance, and ha then then you'll have something to reference and go back to, um, uh, uh, and and try to to not you know overlook something that's been on your mind. Um, if everything is going as expected and going smoothly, there may not be uh, issues. But, you know, I, I've been doing this long enough to know that it's, it's very common that, um, that uh, side effects of treatment arise or, you know, fears, concerns. Um, and uh, we, we want to be able to talk about those, and, and a list helps. Um, Another way nowadays that you can get information uh, about your care and your disease, how you're doing, is to just go on your phone and, and look at the, at the medical records. Um, this has been a, a shift uh, that is now just, it's expected that these records are about you, they're important to you, and you should be able to read them and, and know everything that we know. Um, I think most doctors kind of thought of it that way already. In, in other words, there was nothing that I, that I ever wrote down in a note that I wasn't also very upfront with the person and telling them and explaining. Um, it's not like there was this secret you know, set, set of information that was 
different than what we were saying. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, what is different about it is it's expressed in different terms. There's more medical jargon in the notes. And so that, that's, that is the pitfall of this, is it can be off-putting um, to see words that you're not familiar with, see uh, information that you might not know how to interpret. And, um, and this is, especially in myeloma, where there's so many numbers, there's so many lab tests, and, um, and people now do their homework and they go over their lab tests and sometimes want to know, well, why is this one too high and why is this one is, is low? Uh, and I'm happy to, to do that. That's my job. But, um, but you, you, if you're looking at your own data, you want to take it with a grain of salt and you, want to, you don't want to, you know, jump to conclusions and, and, uh, and sort of say, oh, this, you know, this one value went up by 0.2 from where it was last month and, and allow yourself to, 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 to worry and, and, you know, uh, kind of make a decision about what that means. Now, is some, some of these values are hard for any of us to interpret. We sometimes don't know what it all means, or, or, or the, the picture can be murky as far as is a treatment working or not, and, you know, how, how are things going? But we, we at least have a trained eye and, and can try to make sense of the numbers for you and, you know, which, which ones uh, are really critical and which ones you can sort of ignore. Um, and so... You know, that's just a word of warning is if you're going to look at your own data uh, or or you read your own imaging reports or anything like that, um, don't don't get too hung up on it um, until you've had a chance to talk it over. Uh, you, you, but but certainly you're welcome to look and see what's there. You're welcome to see what I'm thinking. My notes have a lot of, uh, you know, here's the treatment I recommend, here's why I recommend it, here's the other treatment that I thought about, but I didn't want to do that for this reason. Uh, if this one doesn't work, here's what I might do instead. You know, all that kind of thought process is there. And, and for some patients, that's, that's, that, that kind of is reassuring to, to, to have a, a, a fuller picture um, of how these decisions get made. The, the last topic, I guess, that, that, that I was going to address is uh, quality of life. Um, and, and this is really a high-level thing. In, in other diseases, uh, you know, some cancers where we have a, it's a temporary thing. It's something we're trying to just deal with and put past us. Um, there's a lot of sacrifices that, that are sometimes asked of the patient uh, to do that. Um, you, you know, you, you, you kind of, it's short-term pain for long-term gain. Um, that happens in myeloma treatment too, but, uh, you know, in myeloma, we, we you know, we often, in fact, in fact, we've already heard this term today, you know, it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Um, this is a lifelong disease for most people, and, and dealing with it is something that, uh, that it, you, we have to find a way to live with it. Um, to to control the disease, to to gain, you know, to to get it um, into a state where it's not a threat to you, if we're able to do that, and we often can, 
Um, but also to do that in a way that doesn't take over your life and become your, you know, your whole, uh, you know, what you live for is treatment and the side effects of treatment kind of kind of replace all the things that you want to do. So when I have uh, someone who has an important life event, a graduation, a wedding, a uh, cruise they've wanted to take, you know, I don't say, well, can't, you got to cancel that. Your, your, your myeloma treatment comes first. It's quite the opposite. Myeloma treatment is is so you can do those things, and uh, and that may sometimes means rescheduling treatment. It sometimes means changing doses of treatments if if the side effects are are you know making it impossible for you to enjoy life. We have a lot of flexibility to do that, and uh, and never be shy to ask. Never feel like oh I just you know, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable. This is unpleasant issue with treatment, but I guess that's just what I have to do. So I'm not going to mention it. We want to know that stuff. And, and in a lot of cases, there, there's, there's a lot we can do about it. Um, so this just all comes back to, uh, you know, the, the better uh, communication you have both ways, um, the more uh, the team, and it's, and as I say that again, cause it's not just the doctor or the doctors, you know, important part of the team, but so is the nurse. Uh, there may be medical assistants. There may be uh, the schedulers. You know, there's a lot of people that you interact with, and, and the better you can, um, you can communicate, uh, you know, what's important and how you're doing, the, the better we'll, the more information we'll have to, to, to try to make, try to, you know, help make the right decisions. Um, I think that covers what I was going to talk about, but I'm always happy to answer questions. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Bubba. That was really an outstanding presentation and really very much what people need to hear about in terms of just the uh, issues of, you know, communicating with the healthcare team and also the really benefits of telehealth, telemedicine appointments, um, and not only for the person themselves, but for people who, who the person um, with cancer, as long as they approve it, could be living far away or even in another country, and they could be a part of the call as well. And that really opens up that whole perspective, so it's wonderful. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Guadalupe Palos, and Dr. Palos is former Clinical Protocol Administration Manager, Office of Cancer Survivorship, University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center, author and researcher in healthcare disparities, caregiving, and survivorship. And Dr. Palos will be addressing deciding to become a caregiver, your role in adherence, weekends, holidays, vacations, and coping with each day on special occasions, anniversaries, and birthdays, managing family, friends, and traditions. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Palos. Thank you, Dr. Messner, for the invitation to join the wonderful panel that is focusing on the issues of caring for a loved one diagnosed with multiple myeloma. And a shout out to all of our audience members for taking the time to uh, log in and listen to this uh, educational workshop. As previously said, it's important to keep yourself educated because there are so many changes and they happen so rapidly all the time in healthcare and particularly in this um, area. You know, Dr. Yi discussed patients and their families, uh, all the challenges they face when making decisions about the management of this complex disease. Now, the diagnosis, as you well know, requires a multidimensional approach to manage the symptoms, treat the disease, or to even deal with chronic conditions such as diabetes, as well as with unexpected illnesses such as COVID or the flu. 
Both Dr. Butler and Dr. Yi stressed the importance of communicating with the healthcare team. They gave valuable insights into the role of telehealth and technology in communicating with team members. In the next few moments, I plan to talk about how an individual decides to become a caregiver and the critical role of the caregiver during special moments uh, for their loved one and their families. So if you think about it, few people plan to take on the role of a family caregiver. Yet each year, many of us find ourselves shouldering the responsibility of caring for a loved one diagnosed with cancer or perhaps with some other um, illness or special conditions. The need for caregiving occurs across all generations, more um, across all income or educational levels, family types, gender identities, and sexual orientations. With increased life expectancies and the medical advances that we're experiencing, more people need care for a longer period of time, and family members are often the first ones to step in to help. Whether the task creeps up gradually or occurs unexpectedly, providing care for a family member is a challenging job that can be overwhelming, particularly for those who still have to work, maintain a household, and then, of course, care for those other family members that um, they have. Um, However, with thoughtful planning, a strong support system, and a realistic understanding of the role, family caregivers can give their loved ones the help they need without sacrificing their own health. Informal caregivers are a valuable resource for their care recipient. That, that is true. And caregivers continue to be an essential component of the healthcare team and the system. Yet, caregivers are un- often underappreciated, overlooked, and sometimes invisible during patient-provider communication interactions. For today's discussion, the word caregiver is not going to apply to a healthcare provider or a person paid to be a caregiver. We will focus on informal caregivers. The members of this unique group are often family members or friends who provide care, typically unpaid, to someone with whom they have a personal relationship. Caregivers have multiple roles when caring for a loved one at home, as many of you know already. Caregivers must negotiate with family members about their care and communicate about their care. They provide companionship, emotional support, interact with the healthcare team, um, drive care recipients to appointments, do housework, shop, complete paperwork, and on and on and on. Many of you in that role know what you have to do on an ongoing basis. So the care, all this caregiving and the various activities take a tremendous toll on caregivers' health and well-being and often leads to a significant financial burden on the families and society, which again, increases the stresses for caregivers. So family caregiving has been associated with increased levels of depression, anxiety, higher use of psychotropic medications, poor self-reported physical health, and compromised immune function. Now we're talking about the caregiver, not the patient right now, but the caregiver. And this myth will provide strategies for self-care and relaxation, which may help manage these symptoms. Few studies, however, directly compare caregivers of cancer patients who are at different stages of the disease. So someone who is newly diagnosed with this uh, multiple myeloma is going to have very different needs 
from someone who is actually in the treatment phase. And so that means the caregiver is going to have to transition across these stages and be able to keep up with all the different tasks and activities and responsibilities that they are, are being asked to fulfill. Interestingly, one research group conducted a qualita qualitative study. Those are like storytellings and interviews. And they talked to cancer caregivers before, during, or four, or four months after a bone marrow transplant. There were differences across the trajectory of those time periods. However, across all of those time periods, two consistent themes regarding caregiver concerns emerged, uncertainty and the need for information. So those of you on this call, you are going to be able to address or at least manage that uncertainty and the need for information by learning all the things that you learned today and, and other workshops. Yet there are several other studies of caregivers, of adult cancer survivors, that discovered common themes on the positive aspects of caregiving. For example, uh, folks have reported closer relationships with partners, children, and others, a greater appreciation of life, clarification of life priorities, increased faith, more empathy for others, and better health habits. In closing this section of my discussion, deciding to become a caregiver may be deliberate or unexpected. One caregiver sums this question about, did I have a choice or how did I decide? Caregivers, for the most part, do not weigh the pros and cons. They just dive in. So I think many of you can relate to that particular phrase, we just dive in. So let's move on to our next topic, the role of a caregiver in ensuring adherence during weekends, holidays, vacations, and other special occasions. What do we mean by adherence in the context of today's discussion? It means following your treatment regimens, following nutritional or dietary guidelines, and we'll hear more about that in, uh, with one of our other speakers, physical therapy, uh, medication schedules, as prescribed by your providers. So here are a few tips for the caregiver to cope with these special events. So let's begin by discussing ways to manage the chaos that is associated with special times. One helpful strategy is to develop a caregiver preparedness plan. This plan would be like a hurricane preparedness plan. It would meet, map out the details of how to prepare for these special events. The plan would allow the caregiver to make some trade-offs in their role when trying to care for a loved one during special times, especially if they decide to take a vacation or are far away from their caregiver, like a long-distance caregiver. So here's a few things that you might want to include in your plan that will help you be proactive and prepared. You can talk to your family members and friends and identify the roles of each one who wants to be part of the team. As many people want to help but many times we forget about them or we just don't ask them because we think we're imposing on them. But it doesn't hurt to check. Ask the question. If they say yes, that's wonderful. If they say no, well, yes, you understand. But again, we find out what they would like to help with. Do they want to help by driving? Do they want to pick medications up? Do they want to come in and bring meals? Everyone has a talent. And so you can ask them what their talent is and what they would prefer to do as part of the team. Determine what realistically can be done. Don't try to do it all and be perfect about everything. This is not a time to strive for perfection. What you're trying to do is to make sure that your loved one is being taken care of and that you are also being taken care of as you go through this experience. 
So make a stable and a realistic plan, especially if you're a long uh, distance caregiver. It's very hard to do that role when, when you're not there watching and seeing and interacting on a daily basis. And oftentimes our long distance caregivers uh, have a lot of guilt because they're not there. So don't get yourself into that. Just try to see what you can do, what's realistic. And again, when you can't, I'll talk a little bit about what some of the things are that you can do when you're a long distance caregiver. Be willing to be flexible about traditions and customs associated with holidays or family gatherings or special occasions. If your home was a hub of such activities, it might be time to make changes. For example, ask another family member to host the event. But if you decide to go ahead and do it yourself, Invite fewer guests. It won't be tiring for your loved one or for you as tiring for your loved one or uh, you as the caregiver. And it also sometimes will provide a more intimate or a quieter environment for better one-to-one conversations. You can even prepare your own video clips of past holidays. These clips provide a snapshot of memories from the past, and you can share them with your loved one. For example, you know, all this new technology, uh, one of my Nisa sat me down and showed me how to use my iPhone to put uh, a YouTube video on the television set. That was an aha for me, and I'm able to do that. So you can have those video clips and share them even through the ease of your own television set. If travel is difficult, remember to plan to incorporate social media into these events. Use channels such as Zoom, Skype, WebEx, or FaceTime to be present at an event. Your loved one and family will still be part of the festivities. If travel is possible, remember it's beneficial to have lead time. And remember, it's also important to give your healthcare team lead time. Give them a notice that you'll be traveling for how, how long and in what region. Is it going to be domestic or is it going to be international? If you have pets that will not travel with you, let your veterinarian know about your plan and set up your boarding plan uh, for your fur baby. Give the vet and facility your contact information in case of emergencies. Keep a list of all of your medications, their dosages, time to be taken, and how to be taken. You can store it on your computer, your tablet, your mobile phone, or even an old-fashioned index card if that's better for you. Remember to write down the names and contact information of the physicians and providers prescribing the medications and the pharmacy where the medications are obtained, and include the emergency information for each provider and pharmacy. We've had times, too, when patients have asked the physician, their physician, to write a letter stating that he or she has the prescribed medications and have a list of the medications. Make copies of the letter and take some with you, as well as giving them to family members, friends, or providers. It's also helpful to communicate with your pharmacist about their policies regarding refills if you lose your meds or run out of pills while you're out of town. When flying, keep your medications in a small carry-on bag with all the medications either stored in a prescription container or in their original bottles. This is when that letter from your physician comes in handy. Keep it in the bag with your meds and show it to um, security folks when and if needed. So here's a few things to do if you're a long-distance caregiver. Try to book regular trips to your loved one's home ahead of time. Take advantage of those times when the airlines are are giving uh, discounts. When you're there, look at the personal hygiene of your loved one, the level of activity and mobility, 
the nutritional needs. For example, are there groceries in the pantry and the refrigerator? And what type of groceries are in the pantry and refrigerator? Look at the condition of the home. Is it clear and well organized? And look at the safety needs. Are there falling hazards, smoke detectors, secure locks on the door? Is there a trusted neighbor that may have a key to the house? If you have these plans in place, it gives you a, um, an ease of mind. And so, again, you feel like you are prepared if something comes up. I would recommend that you always have a ready-to-go backpack, uh, pack, I call it a backpack. Um, have it as the medical supplies you'll be needing, extra clothing, copies of essential documents, such as copies of prescriptions, contact numbers of your healthcare providers, and the members of your family, your family healthcare team. Trying to pack for a vacation or travel is chaotic without worrying, having to worry about items needed to provide continuity of care for your loved one. These ready-to-go packs are needed for the patient and the caregiver. It seems that the caregiver is always prepared to meet the patient's needs, but often forget about their own needs. Our following speakers will share tips for maintaining healthy hydration and nutrition wellness and provide strategies that caregivers may use for self-care and relaxation. Remind yourself that you as a caregiver and the person you care for will reap the benefits of a healthy caregiver. Thank you for allowing me to share these thoughts with you. My colleagues and I look forward to hearing from you and the suggestions some of you may wish to share about these areas of concern. And so Dr. Messner, I'll return the discussion to you since this concludes my remarks. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Palos. That was really wonderful. Just so many wonderful tips for people to have that go-to bag, all the things. That, and, and so uh, thank you so much. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. So th thank you so much. And our next speaker is uh, Diana Baird. And Ms. Bearden is an oncology dietitian at the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center. And Ms. Bearden will be Prevent, providing information for caregivers about nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. So I'm now going to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bearden. Thank you so much, Carolyn. Um, yes, nutrition and hydration are essential, not only in the tolerance to treatment, but providing the patient um, the energy to do the things that they enjoy. Communication is one of the most important things um, I want to be sure to touch on today. And communicating challenges, changes in tolerance to eating, um, anything that is different um, going on with the patient as far as food consumption, it's very important to let your healthcare team know as soon as possible. The sooner they know, the sooner they can help support you. Um, in general, I get a lot of questions about you know the diet for patients with multiple myeloma and what should a person be eating and not eating because a lot of times family and friends want to help support the patient by preparing meals and bringing them over. Um, a lot of patients are going to many appointments and maybe getting treatments, so they're usually gone out of the house for, you know, extended periods of time. The general recommendation is, um, you know, before, during, and after cancer um, is a plant-based diet, a whole food plant-based diet. So we look at the least processed the better. It's kind of a good way to look at it. Um, if you're looking at a plate for a visual, about two-thirds of the plate to come from a fresh, frozen, a fresh or frozen uh, 
plant-based foods such as fruit, vegetables, whole grains, um, and the other third of the plate coming from a lean protein source. Ideally something lean like a lean poultry, um, a lean meat, um, cold water fish, um, or plant-based protein such as quinoa um, are all great options. Um, I bring up fresh and frozen because a lot of times patients don't realize that um, frozen is, is a fantastic product for patients. Um, it keeps longer, and especially when a patient's going through treatment, they may have certain um, changes in their taste or desires for food, and it can be a cost-effective way to offer a variety of different fruits and vegetables um, to the patients um, throughout their treatment. Um, so that's a, an, an excellent way to get our plant-based foods in is through a frozen form. Um, you know, your loved one's diet may be modified. I just kind of went over, an, you know, kind of the ideal recommendations, but each person's unique and their journey through their cancer treatment is unique. And so um, there might be times where it's deviating from this, you know, kind of ideal situation. Um, most of the time it's based on side effects, what the patient's going through or maybe the treatment that they're receiving. Um, some potential side effects that may a patient might experience are things like a decreased appetite, maybe they um, are having more fatigue than normal, maybe there's some changes in weight, nausea or vomiting. Um, this is, these are things that can come along and, and again talking with your healthcare team when you see changes like this happen is very important. Um, you can request to speak with a dietitian. A dietitian is part of your healthcare team. And the dietitian can help individualize the plan for the patient and give tips for, um, you know, the caregiver. You know, you have a life as well and you're balancing, you know, helping support the patient. And so it's very important that we come up with something that is going to work for your situation, your unique situation. Um, I always remind folks that even if a patient is overweight, sometimes we, we think outside of, you know, cancer treatment and, oh, they could, you know, could stand to lose a little weight. Not in this time. Um, we want to just be very mindful that the patient's well-nourished. You can actually become malnourished even being overweight. Um, and so, you know, we do want to make sure that we're, we have the right information for you so that you know the best thing to do for the patient. Now, there are medications that you might be given along the way, and it's important that you know how to take these medications. A lot of them are to address side effects, and things like nausea and vomiting, maybe diarrhea and constipation, um, a number of different side effects that you may experience or may not experience, but if you have a medication for it, make sure you understand how to take it. Make sure you have a way of organizing that medication so that if it needs to be taken right before a meal um, or first thing in the morning, that that medication taken at the right time. Um, for example, medications for nausea, um, you, there's recommendations for some of those medications to be taken uh, a certain period of time before a meal and then, and then for it to start taking effect before you start eating and it can help um, by staying on a, a, you know, a timed schedule for when those medications are provided. So just understand those medications that you're given, when to take them and how to take them. Um, planning ahead, I, I think this is something that um, gets lost in the shuffle a little bit. We, you know, we get the papers together, we know the appointments, but planning ahead for the caregiver and the provider is both important. And when you get in the hospital and there's limited resources for food options and drink options, I always tell people, pack a bag, get a little you know, backpack if you can that's um, insulated, packing snacks so you're not you know, feeling like, oh my goodness, we don't have time to stop and I know you haven't eaten lunch 
lunch. This will help you from skipping meals. It will help the patient from skipping meals. Um, hydrating is very important. Um, and we're going to talk a minute about that in a minute about that. But I just always want patients to always bring something with them. Um, bring things that are working for you from home for a snack so that you don't feel like you're kind of, you know, out of options and you still have, you know, appointments run behind, doctors run behind, um, because there's so much going on. And so just to be sure that you have what you need when you're away from home. Now, hydration is very important. We don't put a lot of emphasis on hydration typically. In most conversations, we're looking at weight and the side effects and those sorts of things. But hydration is um, essential. And dehydration can actually amplify some of the side effects you might experience, such as um, nausea. If you're having any bowel function issues, it, there can be an impact with that for constipation. Even the way medications work, some medications you're needing to drink with the medication or eat with the medication. And so a general rule of thumb is that each person generally needs about 64 to 80 ounces of water. That's 8 to 10 8-ounce glasses of water a day. And anything that's liquid at room temperature is considered a fluid. So things like water, milk, and juice um, are all great options. Um, in closing, I just want you all to remember there are several healthcare team members there to support you. Communication is the key to getting your needs met as soon as possible and knowing who to communicate with. Um, don't ever hesitate to reach out to your team. They're there for you. And the sooner that you reach out to them, the better. Uh, thank you for letting me be part of today's presentation. I'm going to hand the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Bearden. That was a wonderful presentation, lots of wonderful advice and information. I'm sure there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Dina Smith, and Ms. Smith is the Caregiver Program Coordinator at Cancer Care, and she's going to address self-care tips for managing lifestyle and stress, relaxation exercises for caregivers, and then she'll provide information about Cancer Care's free workshops and programs with our Hopeline information, our website, and also she'll be discussing a special program that we have, um, a Cancer Care Transportation Program available to aid people living with multi-myeloma. So it's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Smith. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Um, so thank you, everyone, for being here today. I, I know that everyone carved out a little bit of time for themselves to just listen to this, and I just want to honor that and say that, um, you know, that is a form of self-care in and of itself, and I will talk a little bit about that um, further into my talk. But I just first wanted to mention that um, caregiving can look, feel, and mean different things for different people. And I want you to ask yourself right now, how do you identify as a caregiver? There's really no right or wrong way to caregive. Um, you can be a short-distance caregiver, meaning you can live in the same household as your loved one, or you can be a long-distance caregiver, meaning you're taking care of someone even from across the country. You could be a child, uh, a spouse, or a parent, and you can all caregive in those identities. Um, you could be an emotional caregiver, meaning you can lend an ear or a shoulder to cry on. You could be a practical caregiver, meaning you can transport people to and from doctor's appointments or um, take care of their medications, um, or you can do a combination. Again, there's no right or wrong way to caregive. But with caregiving comes stress, and I want to address a lot of ways in which to alleviate stress today, for, both for you, yourself and your loved one. 
Um, so first and foremost, I believe that the best way to alleviate stress is to be honest with yourself and your loved one about your abilities. Uh, communicate your boundaries. What can you do versus what can't you do? Be honest about this. Think about this for a minute and then also talk with your loved one about it. Ask your loved one to be honest with you about how they're feeling and what they need as well. This communication can be a two-way road. An additional way to alleviate stress is carving out time for yourself every day, just as you're doing right now. Your daily schedule may look very different uh, from pre-diagnosis to currently. Um, this can shock the system. So what is something that you can do just for yourself every day? I encourage you to either take out your smartphone calendar or your paper calendar and set aside even 5, 10, 15 minutes, an hour even, to think about something that you can do just for yourself. That can mean taking a nap, doing some exercise, or simply just watching some TV. Um, but also, if you do need to go out of the house or you feel like you just need to take a walk but you're just too afraid to because you don't want to leave your loved one, don't be afraid to ask for respite care. That's very important. A final way to alleviate stress is by educating yourself by asking questions to the medical team. I always encourage uh, caregivers especially to ask questions. There is no such thing as a stupid question in the medical room. Some questions to ask would be, uh, you know, to prepare yourself. What side effects should you prepare for um, if your loved one is going to receive a certain type of treatment? What even is multiple myeloma? Maybe you're having trouble understanding it and you could ask the doctor to simplify it a little bit for you. Uh, what events can you still go to? Uh, what event, um, if you have pre-planned vacations, can you still go to them? Uh, talk about reunions, birthdays, vacations that are upcoming or to be planned with your doctor. But more commonly uh, known are, um, in terms of self-care practices are those meditative exercises. And this is a great way to practice self-care, but I also want to encourage people to think about what self-care means to them. Just as you know, your caregiver identity, what is self-care to you? How do you identify self-care? Um, so we can think about not only those grounding and meditative exercises, such as uh, box breathing, which is breathing in for four counts, holding your breath for four counts, and exhaling for four counts. You can also very easily YouTube uh, meditative body scans or meditative guided imagery, and from there you'll hear a, uh, a voice kind of guiding you through thinking, for instance, about a beautiful beach or a calming forest. Um, in addition, with the body scan, the voice will also guide you to think about um, certain body parts, like how is your scalp feeling, how is your nose feeling, how are your toes feeling. You really don't think about these body parts, but when you really start to tune in, you'll feel the tension and you'll kind of work on work to alleviate the tension through that body scan. Um, if you're on the go, I highly encourage you to download apps such as Calm or Headspace. Those are wonderful if you're on the go and you don't have time to sit down at the computer. But beyond grounding and meditative exercises, there are also other ways in which to practice self-care exercise, eating healthy, practicing good sleep hygiene, and what that means is uh, getting a good six to ten hours of sleep, not looking at a blue screen, meaning your phone or your computer right before bed, um, perhaps um, you know, establishing a nightly routine. 
honoring your own appointments, and those can be both uh, personal um, and pleasurable, or they can also be medical as well. Um, and my personal favorite, saying yes to yourself and no to others. Um, saying no to others is not a selfish act. You're protecting your own energy and therefore you are maintaining your charged battery, if you will, in order to take care of your loved one. Um, and finally, most importantly, please remember, caregiving isn't easy. And I really ask that you please be patient with yourself. Uh, something that I really tend to ask my caregivers is, what are three admirable qualities that you have learned about yourself while caregiving? I know that caregiving can feel very tiring and it can feel like you haven't accomplished much, but I promise you have. So again, what are three admirable qualities that you have learned about yourself while caregiving? Please honor the sacrifice that you have made both for yourself and your loved one. Um, and if it's really feeling like you're having a difficult time coping with all the stressors of caregiving, I highly encourage you to seek counseling. And that kind of transitions nicely into talking about cancer care services. Um, so cancer care itself offers um, New York and New Jersey residents one-on-one -on -one and live support group counseling. But in addition to that, um, you know, if you're outside of New York and New Jersey, there are also other places to look for counseling, such as the American Cancer Society, Psychology Today, or even asking your social worker at your lo local hospital. Beyond counseling at, um, at Cancer Care, uh, Cancer Care also offers educational and wellness workshops. Uh, we are in one right now, of course, but we also offer lots of other wellness workshops, such as ones on meditation, um, learning more about clinical trials, advocating for yourself in the doctor's office. Um, I highly encourage you to go to our website, cancercare.org, and to just click around and see what you can find. Uh, beyond that, uh, we also offer financial aid to many different people all around the U.S. And we also offer lots of educational material, articles, and lastly, uh, resource navigation, which is um, maybe more of you know this as case management services. Um, and as Dr. Mester said, we do have a form of financial aid right now for multiple myeloma patients. This is to help with transportation needs. So if you feel like you're really struggling with paying for gas, paying for parking, or ride shares, or public transportation, please call our HOPE line, which is 1-800-813-4673, and go to our website, cancercare.org. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Smith. That was really outstanding. Just a wonderful presentation. I know I'll have questions for you also during the Q&A as well. And now we have time for questions, and I'm going to ask Rob, to go ahead and explain to you how to queue up for questions. Rob. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And so we have some great questions here for, from our participants. Um, and also, we, will, we welcome also um, questions uh, or comments from participants in terms of how they have coped or what tips they'd like to share with others as well. Um, we do have a question, um, and this one I'm going to ask of Dr. Yi. Can a healthcare provider ask for a telehealth appointment or call and speak to a doctor or nurse on behalf of a patient? Dr. Yi, if you could comment on that. Uh, I'm sorry, could, you, could a telehealth visit on behalf of a patient? You mean, can a, yes. a, a caregiver can a request? Uh, can I, yes, can I, um, yes. I, well, actually, they're asking if a healthcare provider, hmm. Maybe they mean it. Can a caregiver? 
Can a caregiver ask for a telehealth appointment or a call and speak to a nurse on be or physician on behalf of the patient? Sure. So, you know, one of the, you know, one of the outcomes of the of the COVID era has been we've started to use telehealth significantly more than before the COVID era. So. I think a lot depends on every individual on practice to practice. So I think at least for our practice, there's a balance between in-person visits and telehealth visits and not often, not uncommonly, you know, patients will request a a telemedicine visit for various reasons. So I think this is something that, that, though I recognize that that's something that can vary from practice to practice. And if I think of it's an option, I think it's totally appropriate to ask for that if it's available as an option. Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, and then we have a question um, uh, um, for um, for Dr. Palos. My mother is still trying to be at 100% at all times, especially with her grandkids. I keep trying to make her slow down and rest, but she won't listen. I'm very concerned. Any advice, Dr. Palos? Yes, uh, that's uh, quite a situation to be in. But I will kind of point this out. The way your mother is going 100% is perhaps her way of coping with her diagnosis and um, her treatments. Um, If she was used to doing that before and she still continues, you know, this is a way of saying that I'm still having a normal routine life. And what you might want to do is just keep an eye on her. And when you feel like she's really exhausting herself, then try to distract her, you know, so get the grandkids in there and say, uh, we're all going to go and sit down for a while and uh, watch a Disney show, or we're all going to sit down and tell stories that we like. Um, That might be a way to just have her sit and rest. And then, then she's probably going to get up and do some more things. People need to have their own coping uh, mechanisms. And people who were active before, if you ask them to sit still and not do anything, it's going to be very, very, very challenging for them. So this is a way to be supportive of her. Um, You'll know when she's pretty exhausted. And that's the times that you might make make your suggestions for her. And let her enjoy the grandchildren as much as she can. They bring a great joy to uh, to their grandparents, uh, and I hope that helps. It's, it's hard, especially if it's your mom. You know, she's used to kind of calling the shots, but this is a time where let her call the shots when she can, and then go ahead and be her caregiver and support her when you see her needing that support. Excellent, thank you. And for Ms. Beard, in, in my new role as caregiver, I no longer have the time to cook a full meal for dinner every evening. Can you suggest some quick, nutritious meals for multi-myeloma patients? Absolutely. Um, Today, more than any other time, there are so many options out there um, for well-balanced meals. And there's services um, such as, you know, that can deliver meals to your house. I know around Houston, um, and I'm not sure where you're living, but you can always Google and see um, some common ones or things like Snap Kitchen or... um, you know, even our grocery stores and, I'm, and Kroger's, et cetera, they all have these types of meals where they're prepared. You can put them in the oven when you get home, and it typically will have a, a lean protein, a vegetable, and a starch. Um, 
even now a lot of frozen meals or prepared meals, they, they've really turned the page. They're not the same hungry man, quote, unquote, highly preserved frozen meal that's out there. Um, and those work. Another thing that I tell patients is another really quick meal is, you know, don't forget things like tuna salad, chicken salad, um, you know, those sorts of things are good high protein. Um, they're, they're very easy to prepare. You don't have to cook. A lot of them don't require even turning on the oven. Um, but just having the kind of those grab-and-go options in the fridge, cheese and crackers with some fruit. You don't have to have a whole um, hot meal necessarily to have a complete meal, but you're looking to have a protein, a starch, and a vegetable. And if you want a fruit, have a fruit included in that. Um, so it, it, it can be different, different things that are just grab-and-go in the fridge, but um, boiled eggs are a great thing you can keep in the fridge that um, are a wonderful um, grab-and-go option. Um, I even you know, personally and, and no other patients who do this, but they'll batch cook. Um, they'll cook maybe on the weekend for the week, stick it in the freezer. Um, you can make spaghettis, lasagnas, etc. stick them in the freezer and have them ready to go. If you have friends or family that want to help with something like that, just ask them to put them into small portions. So it would be like if it's just a couple of you eating it into small portions that you can put into freezer packets and stick them in the freezer and just have those ready when you're ready for them. Um, frozen meals can be in the freezer for up to six months, and, um, and those are totally – you know, safe for you to warm up and cook and, and consume. Excellent. Thank you. And I talked to you another question for you. Um, so, and it's similar to the other one, but the, it's a, I guess it's a repeat question. Can a caregiver request a telehealth appointment with a doctor or nurse as opposed to the patient? I guess that's a question. I think you answered it, but if you could answer it again, it looks like there's still a question on that. Right. No, I think, again, I think it depends on practice to practice. And, you know, the reality is in some patients, for some visits, the caregiver, you know, for just for whatever reason, sometimes the caregiver is the main person that you end up interacting with because of the patient's condition, et cetera. So in my mind, when I think about an appointment with the patient, it's either, the, it, it, for me, they're interchangeable with the caregiver or with the patient. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Um... So this is a question from Ms. Smith. My dad has never trusted doctors. He's afraid he's being taken advantage of, and we're paying for tests, treatments we don't need. As his caregiver, how can I convince him otherwise? Mm, that's a great question. Um, so I would uh, definitely have a sit-down conversation with him and um, you know, see what's going on you know, inside his head, you know, there's a reason why he doesn't trust doctors. What is that reasoning? Now, I'm not saying uh, become a full-time therapist for him, but um, we do need to get to the root of the issue in order to help him feel a little more comfortable with going to the doctor's office. Um, if he perhaps wants to have a little more control over the situation, that would probably help. Um, perhaps um, you and him can sit down together and see what options are out there or in your area um, in terms of picking his oncologist. 
Um, another great uh, idea is, um, you know, perhaps when he does get up the courage to go, or if he does decide to, and you know, go, um, you can definitely go with him. And I encourage you to encourage him to um, explain his fears to the doctor, explain, um, you know, why he doesn't want to go. And when all of this is out on the table, when all, when everything is communicated, uh, the doctor may be able to kind of alleviate some of his fears or maybe just answer some of his questions, um, and that'll gain further trust between him and his medical team. Uh, great question. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks so much. That's wonderful. And I, um, we have many more questions, but I do want to have our speakers just give some takeaways from today's program. So I'm going to ask that um, um, our speakers, um, Dr. Yi, um, uh, Dr. Palos, Ms. Bearden and Ms. Smith, actually in that order, um, would give just some takeaway, what you'd like people to take away from today's program. We'll start with Dr. Yee. Yeah, I, I, think, I think the role of the caregiver is so key and essential. And I know I've talked about some of the new exciting therapies we have in myeloma, but I also wanted to emphasize that a lot of how we are able to provide these great treatments for, for our patients is really the role of the caregiver. So I, I really wanted to emphasize how key you know, how important it is that we, we all appreciate, you know, family members, caregivers, friends, uh, significant others, you know, in terms of helping to take care of our patients and helping to, to you know, make, make everything a reality for our patients. So I, so I think what we talked about is so on, on point with, with this. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Yee and uh, Dr. Palos. Oh, I, I'm going to take it back again to the caregiver. Um, there's a website called Caregiver Warrior. Uh, you, you might want to just kind of look it up. But they have a, 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 a mantra there that I thought was very interesting for caregivers. She says, I believe caregivers are warriors, fearless, courageous, and passionate about protecting those they care for. So that is, that, that is a, a mantra. But I think one of the pieces that's missing from there is to also care for yourself and do not feel guilty. And the last thing I would say is to remember to communicate, communicate, communicate. That's the, one of the main successful tools that you can use as you and your family member uh, goes through this experience. Thank you so much, Dr. Pellis. And um, uh, Ms. Ms. Bearden. Yeah. Um, so yeah, of course, communication is absolutely essential. I couldn't echo that enough from um, Dr. Palace. But also, um, I, you know, I see a lot of conflict a lot of times between the patient and the caregiver when it comes to food. And um, the caregiver is really pushing the patient to eat and the patient is um, declining or, you know, for whatever reason, isn't um, maybe welcoming it at that time. And I, I just want caregivers to know that, you know, you can be there to support, but I think it's also important that you're communicating with the healthcare team about any challenges you're having. You don't have, it doesn't have to become a struggle between you and the patient. And I see that a lot. Um, allow the team to help support the message that, you're, that has been sent and reinforce what you're doing. And then if the patient feels like they're not being heard, have that talk with the healthcare team. Um, I think, you know, as caregivers, you know, they want to help and, and make it better and here, just do this. And they're, they're trying very hard. They wear themselves out and, and there becomes a lot of stress between them and the patient. And there doesn't need to be that. Um, I think if, if it gets to the point where you're, 
there's resistance for whatever reason, just bring it back to the healthcare team, tell them the challenges, let them step in and, and you know, alleviate that pressure from you. You can't make a patient do something and it's not worth um, having a relationship be, you know, compromised for, for any reason, just, you know, being there to support them. Awesome. Thank you. And Miss um, Smith. Yes, thank you. Um, so I think the biggest takeaway that I want everyone to remember from today um, is uh, self-care is not a selfish act. Um, taking time for yourself does not mean that you're skipping out on your caregiver responsibilities. In fact, it means that you are energizing yourself um, in order to help your loved one. Um, I always remind caregivers, think about when you're, um, if slash when you've ever been on an airplane. Um, the pilot always asks you, put on your mask before you help others. Because if you don't help yourself first, how can you help others? Remember, carve out that time for yourself. Think about what your own needs are. Honor what your own boundaries are. And please, please be safe. Be patient with yourself. Um, and as I mentioned in my final sentence of, um, of uh, my talk, please honor the sacrifice that you have made for your loved one. Um, you are doing some really admirable things, and that's important to think about while you're caregiving. Wow, that's wonderful. Well, I actually want to thank all of our speakers. You've been phenomenal. I also want to thank our participants for asking really such great questions. And this has been a phenomenal call, really. We've done a program on this topic before, but I have to say the questions and speakers have just been amazing. That's all I can say. And I want to thank you all. And each of you, um, both our participants and our speakers, have just really brought this program to a whole other level. I also want to um, remind you this is a one-hour program, and that in keeping to that one hour, although we've gone over a bit today, um, I do want to um, just acknowledge that uh, you're, um, that you, you're not alone, that, um, that as a caregiver, you're not alone at all, um, that you're part of a community of support and we're here to help you. And I think that um, you've been given resources both uh, for, for cancer care and also um, you've also been given information about a cancer care transportation program, which is available actually um, on, um, on our website brochure about that and it also is available um, on today's program on the um, you'll be able to see it on the platform itself the, the brochure so you'll be able to see that as well um, and do take advantage of these services they're free they're available to all of you and they're here to help you again I want to thank you all for your participation today and I want to wish you all a very fine day thank you all Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.